against me. And uh, I grew up, actually, we moved when I was about seven years old to the suburbs of a place called Johnstown. So I, I was born in Pittsburgh, actually grew up as a suburbanite outside of a city called Johnstown. And a fun fact I like to share is I was the, when I graduated, I was the only black kid in my entire, not only graduating class, I think my entire school system. I think, uh, so uh, I was a, what I consider a extreme minority, which gave me, to be honest, which gave me a great appreciation for the individuality of everybody, right? So, you know, you have a conglomerate of a, a certain ethnicity, but you get to meet everybody. And I had a, a good, you know, childhood growing up. My parents have been married my entire life. So I grew up in a two-parent home. I got an older brother, two older sisters. I ran track. I played basketball, played a little bit of football when I was growing up. And I graduated, and I was a Herschel Walker fan. That's kind of the reason why I'm not a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. I was a Herschel Walker fan, so I moved a little bit towards the south in the football space. Georgia. University absolutely. of Georgia, right? Absolutely. The only school I applied to, got accepted before I started my senior year, uh, went down there, loved it. A great experience, graduated uh, with a degree in chemistry and a commission into the United States Army back in 1993. So um, my son is actually looking at University of Georgia um, as, as we speak. He's, he's only a junior, but he's actually thinking about that. They got a great sports program down in, in, in sports rehabilitation program. Uh, but now why the Army and why not the Navy, Marines and talk about um, the first time you talked to a recruiter and what your recruiting story was like. Yeah. So I, when I was younger, I kicked around the air force, you know, that may sound weird, but when you're a teenager or young, you know, preteen, I came around how old I was. I was actually talking to my cousins. I have twin cousins that I used to see every summer. And we're just sitting around talking. I was like, I think I'm going to fly an airplane, you know, be air force. And they're like, Eddie, what happens if you, the airplane gets shot down? What happens then? I'm like, yeah, you're right. No way am I joining the Air Force. So I then wasn't thinking about joining the military at that point. I go to University of Georgia and during in processing or doing your selecting your classes when you first get there, my dad was hedging me to take ROTC. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm not thinking about it. But my end up being the best man at my wedding. He was there. My dad was kind of hedging me. And, I, and he was like, all right, let's go ahead and take it. So I took it. You know, that's the pseudo recruiting because I came straight in as a commissioned officer. I didn't do a basic or anything like that. So once I get into ROTC, I started liking what I was seeing, which I was seeing, you know, sort of purpose, discipline, you know, everything we're doing as far as a camaraderie. And then the tipping point was I realized that if I was going to stay at Georgia coming from Pennsylvania, I needed to contribute because my parents couldn't pay the bill for four years. Once I had that revelation, I applied for a three-year ROTC scholarship, got it, and at that point, I was in. And then I just, you know, graduated two <laughs> years later, got commissioned. And that funny, you know, part of the reason that drove me to Georgia, as I told you, was Herschel Walker, and I was a Georgia Bulldog fan. Maybe about seven years ago at Fort Dix, New Jersey, I actually met Herschel, told him the story, got pictures, shared it with everybody who knew, and it kind of full circle from my initial thought of going to Georgia, the experience in ROTC, and then ultimately my career 28 and a half years later. Now, what um, and what job did you pick in the military and why? I ended up choosing chemical core, so nuclear, biological, chemical ready, um, defense. And the reason was at the time, 
I found that you had officers that were pretty good who didn't want chemical and you had officers who were good. Um, let's see who were good and didn't want it. were not that good and did want it. So you had this, this space where people were getting stuck with it if they were good. And I was, I did well, you know, I was a distinguished military graduate, high on the OML, good GPA, all the quals, if you will, for commissioning. And I said, you know, I'm, I think I'm pretty good and I think I can do well in chemical. And my second choice was field artillery. I ended up getting chemical. My first assignment was a field artillery battalion down in Fort Polk, Louisiana. And that was because of that. And the chemical corps allows you to support a lot of the combat arms. So it's good. at the time it was considered combat support. So you still get sort of the combat arms feel, but you're not quite in the combat arms. So I, I enjoy I did for about 12 12 years I did the chemical core before I switched over into what's called operations research systems analysis. And then I retired as a simulation operations officer. Now, did you get deployed at all? I did. So I did a couple of special operations. So I did, I worked on a, um, you know, black special ops and white. Those who are in the field know what I'm talking about. Yep. Uh, when I was a young company grade, I did, um, I did white. Uh, that was more of a uh, support from afar. So I was in Germany, didn't, I went in the theater, but didn't actually, you know, deploy in the theater. Uh, and then when I was a, I think I was a major at the time, uh, I actually deployed to Iraq, uh, went through Fort Bragg. My combat patch is U.S. Special Operations Command, which is the one I take pride in. Um, and uh, and I worked in Balad uh, in Iraq for about six months and probably the best job I had in my career. All right. So let me ask you a couple questions, because, you know, I've had I think we've had over 400 interviews I've interviewed a lot of Navy SEALs, I've Delta Force, Army Rangers, Special Ops. And I love asking this question um, because I think whether it's in life or in business, you have to have that never quit attitude. Um, so what do you think, in your opinion, makes people succeed during selection process and makes people ring the bell, as they would say, in selection process. I'm not sure I'm in a, I'm not in the prime position to answer that. I was an augmentee. So what I saw in my exposure, both, you know, and I've, I've operated obviously with um, different special operations units, you know, direct, direct engagement units, particularly. And what I what always impress me when I work with them is it's the mental space, you know, because when you look at them on surface, they look like they're average as far as their physical build. You know, yeah. They don't look like they're anything special if you've seen a lot of them. Some are obviously more, but for the most part, they're, they look like average soldiers. But they have a gait. They have an air about them that's born from obviously being in the experience. But the mental approach, the mental toughness, and I was talking with my family, my dad was here the last week or so, and we were talking about this mental space and the balance between resiliency and mental strength and mental weakness and the sensitivity of how that is being dealt with. But that resiliency and the mental approach of succeeding or not quitting or demanding from themselves more than what was what would believe to be physically possible that really is the distinguishing factor when you get into those sort of soldiers and that level of elite performance, in my view.
And, you know, I, I, and I think one of the things that I've learned, like I interviewed a gentleman, he has a, bo a book out called Embrace the Suck. Um, his name is, uh, he's a retired uh, Navy SEAL commander, John McCaskill. And when I first met him, I'm like, bro, you look like my accountant. You know, I I'm thinking, you know, six foot five, blonde hair, tan, jacked, and you just look like an average guy. But then when you sit down and talk to him, like you said, the mentality is here. And, you know, any of the special operators that I've talked to, they're meticulous with everything they do. Their, their attention to detail is amazing compared to, I think, the average person, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it's just a different, it's a different cut. And, and I always tell, when I went to Eunice after that, particularly because when you work with them, you get to see what elite means and you appreciate the characteristics necessary to be elite. You know, because we're not just talking elite in the military, U.S. military. We're talking elite in the world. You know, when you're talking about the special operations of the U.S. military and therefore you start to see the characteristics, both from an organization and an individual that are necessary or common, however you want to look at it, in order for elite to be attained. And what you, you know, that meticulousness that you talked about, the attention to detail, the dogged demand for, you know, performance, you know, at a, at a level that's commensurate with expectations, the cohesion of the organization, the selflessness, but absolute uh, accountability of what you're doing because how it contributes to everybody else the trust. I mean, there are just certain things that you see. And so if you're a leader, you know, whether it's in the family, whether it's an organization or even individually, if you want to attain that level of excellence, then you got to really parse out which one of those apply to you or your organization, or your family, and which one do you need to work on? I love it. Now you've done over 28 years and which is highly commendable i only did 23 i wish i would have done 30 but i got hurt but um the thing that I, I i really love about you is that you not only excelled in the military um you also excelled in the home life because a lot of you know we all know that police officers first responders veterans we got like an 80 percent divorce rate it's like it's something really stupid so talk to us about how you kept the family dynamic together while also wearing the uniform. Because sometimes, you know, we don't realize that, you know, like when we're deployed, you know, whether we're female, male, um, our spouse is being deployed at the same time. They're just at home picking up the slack where we were. So what was how did you keep the marriage together? There's, there's a couple of different answers to that, I think, Rich. I think um, compartmentalization, but a commitment from a time and energy, and, and energy is not just physical, but mental perspective. Let me explain what that, what I mean by that. A lot of people, you come in and you're just drained from work and you really don't have the energy to do the stuff in the home. I, I was blessed and I think it comes from my mom where 
you, I could compartmentalize each aspect. And for me, I was committed to invest in each aspect. So some of it is just sort of inherent energy management. Other is a mindset and a commitment mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually to truly invest in the things that matter most in your life. So when I went to work, I was all in at work. You know, I, I was, it was all about the mission. It was all about the task. It was all about the responsibilities, service, everything. I was all in when I went to work any given day, any given assignment that I had. But I also was very conscious of I needed to dedicate time and energy to my marriage. I've been married. We celebrate 27 years on Friday and I've had a very beautiful marriage. You know, we all go through the struggles that we all go through, but nothing catastrophic, obviously. So therefore, I made sure that I committed time and energy to nurturing my marriage, to communicating with my wife, to listening to what she said. And we all we're men. So we all know, you know, that's, you know, listening for us, which is good. It's maybe 80 percent. You know, there's stuff I missed, obviously, but I committed to being attentive to her in that relationship and indicators if something was off. And then the third part was investing in my daughters. And I came up with, I had the, the fortunate exposure to an older father when I was, my daughters were maybe two or three years old when I was in Germany. His daughters were teenagers so they are probably maybe 13, 14 years older than mine. And he was just, and I, I think I mentioned this in my book, he was lamenting on how he missed his daughters growing up. They weren't listening and, and he couldn't really pour into them everything that he thought a father should pour into. And I'm sitting there, you know, I'm trying to keep my daughters from falling off the couch and crying. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I think it's a lieutenant colonel. I'm like, I don't understand what you're talking about. But after about three or four days of thinking about what he said, it hit me. He waited too long. His investment in his daughters was too late, which the tricky part is if it's important to invest, he was taking jobs and, and being deployed at that time. It wasn't a high you know, combat rate, but he didn't actually focus mental, physical, emotional energy in his daughters till they were teenagers. But at that point, Teenage girls, teenagers in general, we all know this because we were teenagers, right, Rich? We're not trying to be hanging out with our parents. We're not trying to listen to them all the time. We're involved in whether social media, hanging out with friends, sports, everything other than parenthood is our priority when we become teenagers. Therefore, for me, I said, okay, I'm not going to wait that long. So everything that I invested in on the front end was when they were about five or six years old till they were about 12, because I said, they're going to be more receptive at that point. I need to pour into them and give them all the advice, build that foundation before they become teenagers and then navigate the teenage years thereafter. So that mindset of having a philosophy, having a belief that I need to commit time and energy in every aspect and to include personal growth and development really allowed me to affect my daughters, my wife, my family, while still having the career I had. And, you know, one thing I really love, and like I said, guys, you definitely need to pick up this book, um, Game Changer. Um, you know, you have a lot of us, you know, I, I got three children. I got two beautiful boys. I got a beautiful girl. But they all have different personalities. And I think that's one of the things you actually hammered home in one of the chapters was you had to deal with each one of your girls on a different way because they have different personalities. And you can't cookie cut a child and you can't say well you know i wish you, like for my kids I, I would never say 
to my daughter, you know, I wish you were more like Sean or you were more like Liam because it just creates a lot of crap. So talk to us about for people that have more than one child, you know, to realize that you can't cookie cut your kids and you have to go with, you know, their gifts and their attitudes and the way that they act. And this way you can reach and touch them individually. Yeah, really good point. One of the terms I use, whatever, for whatever, whether it resonates with anyone or not, is derived personality traits. And I came up with that term because we as parents are going to, I'm not, our, let's put it this way. Our kids are going to pick up certain personality attributes from us in combination. So I tell people my oldest daughter, probably 70% me, the way she thinks, her analytical mind, certain a lot of her personality, it is derived from me. So I can talk to her almost like we're talking and she picks up clean, you know, and then my other daughter is probably 60% my wife. So therefore, when I talk to her, I had to be tell more stories and be more persistent because she has a higher IQ. The way she views things and thinks about certain things is different. And to me, if you're a parent, one of the first things you should look for and identify are the combination of personality traits in your kids. And then you can also add in older versus younger, middle kid, depending on the number of kids you have. So if you invest in doing that and you know one kid is more keen to react or do certain things and another kid is is more keen and apt to react to the same situation differently then you should incorporate in your relationship with them in your parenting style that difference you know one of the examples i gave is my youngest daughter was gifted and talented high iq tested out recognized she got a 4.0 in high school she graduated with a 4.0 School, relatively speaking, was not that hard, and she did very well. My other daughter was not gifted and talented. She had to work her butt off. Now, she was smart, right? I tell people I'm the fourth smartest in my family because my wife, my youngest daughter is probably number one, my wife's number two, and my oldest daughter's number three, and I'm number four. So she had to work her butt off. And as hard as she worked, she still necessarily wouldn't get the same grades as her younger sister. What we didn't do was hold her to the same standard we expected Jalea to perform because an indicator of not doing as well in school for Jalea, maybe she was, didn't work that hard. You know, there was a, something else distracted her. Something came up where the same grade my oldest daughter got may have been, she worked her butt off. That's just an example. You can take sports, you can take social, you can take activities, but you as a parent, in my view, should invest in understanding those derived traits in your kids and then you should make sure that you're interacting with them and developing them based off those strengths and weaknesses and nuances. Now, uh, like I said, I have three beautiful children. You know, one, my one son's in college, right? He's in coastal Carolina, go Sean and Claire's. Um, in high school, he didn't have to study. And now he got to college and all of a sudden, you know, he failed a grade. Now, like life started kicking him in the butt because he realizes, all right, I got I got to put, you know, I got to put, you know, foot to ass. And then my other son, you know, he is the kind of kid that will not be outworked. You can't outwork him. He'll be, you know, on soccer practice. He's going to stay an hour early, leave an hour late. So even though he wasn't even on the team, they gave him a team captain. Um, So he's the kind of guy that, you know, 
is always going to be, you know, go the extra mile. But I think when you start talking to your children, uh, for me, I don't think talking negative about, you know, what they do wrong is the best thing. For me, I rather amplify the things that they do right. And then when they do something right, really over amplified because then they, they want to start um, pushing it a little bit further and getting better. And I think a lot of parents where they struggle, they think, well, the, the kids are little me's and they don't realize that each kid has their own talent. Like my daughter loves to draw. So I'm like, hey, you know, if you love to draw, let's see, go to classes, you know, maybe you want to be a tattoo artist. Maybe you want to be a cartoonist. But I think a lot of parents will look at it and be like, oh, you know, that that's stupid. You know what I mean? And I think if parents, we can start looking and start like Gary Vaynerchuk says, you know, screw what you're not good at and triple down on what you are good at. I think if we started doing that with our kids and not having them waste time playing baseball if they don't want to play baseball. You know what I'm trying to say? I do. I do. There is a there's a balance to that in, in my in my view. I agree that you need to enable your child to do what they enjoy doing and you need to nurture that and develop that. The part about the weaknesses and what they're not good at. So what, what I tell fathers is there's a reason why we're older than our kids. So you have learned things throughout your life that applies to them. One of the things going back to the question of, you asked Rich about my family is, Every time that I did something throughout my life, even into the day, if it applies to my kids and it's something of value to them that they're eventually going to have to navigate, then I recall it and I translate and explain it to them. My daughter's about to go into a, a significant leadership position for the company she works for out in Tennessee here in a couple of weeks. Well, I've been giving her notes that I attained when I was in a similar position as a deputy just four or five years ago. In fact, she's beating me up because I'm trying to get them for. So what that means translates to me when they're younger, even into their older, is if there is something that you struggled in because of your personality or a weakness you had, and you see that similar trait in your daughter or your son, then we should be explaining to them how to make sure that weakness doesn't compromise what they want to achieve. You know, some people talk before they thought. Some people are are not comfortable interacting with people. Some people are rough around the edges. Some people are quick to make decisions, but they're wrong to whatever it is. And I'll tell you that one of the, one of the stories was when my daughter was in sixth grade, I had an issue with procrastination and, you know, I had different issues I had when I was younger. I had issues reading comprehension and I saw those with my daughter and the teacher was calling my daughter out on them. One of the biggest arguments my wife and I had was I thought she should stay in that class with that teacher not transfer to another school because that teacher could intervene at a point in a way that helps mitigate and offset weaknesses that I think she would have. So when you see those in your kid, you shouldn't act like they're not there. You should aggressively address those, but aggressively is relative, right? You don't, don't be overly judgmental. Don't make them feel bad, but you need to talk to them. And as you, as they grow, you should have mature conversations about it so that those weaknesses don't compromise what you know they can achieve and their strengths can actually then be further heightened. So I think you got to be conscious of, of that dynamic. I love it. You know, and now a lot of people, like I said, that, that have been, uh, been on the show or that are actually listening, our dads, 
to and especially girls you know i think there's a special bond between a father and his daughter um my dad just passed on valentine's day and my sisters are destroyed because and what especially one of my sisters because she felt like he was his best for her best friend mm. so uh it really hit me hard and got me really thinking about this book where as my dad was passing um but now a lot of us you know we've been deployed you know so a lot of us are gone for 18 months 12 months and then we come back and then we try to fit right back into the family dynamic the same day and our wives or husbands whichever way it is they're like wait wait hold on there hero you know you've been gone for 18 months uh things have changed and a lot of us didn't like i didn't realize that you have to work in back into the family dynamic slowly and it's and sometimes it's hard to make up that for me like i was working retail for nine nine of or eight of my daughter's 10 years so i only seen her for two hours a day so now i'm trying to make up for it but how does a person that say been deployed come back and get back into the family dynamic without feeling like they don't belong yeah that is a trick one i remember you know i have our family underneath my dad there's four of us and you know married and then you have grandkids and great cans have over 110 years of military experience you know between my brother and i i think both of us are pushing near 30 and then you go from my dad my wife i got two nephews who are in right now i have my son-in-law he's in my sister so a lot of military all of us army experience and i remember maybe about 10 years ago somewhere around there years get blurry i was talking to my nephew about he was going to deploy i think he was down at fort stewart and he was about to deploy and he we were talking about him coming back actually so we're talking about both him deploying giving him advice and then him coming back and he brought up the same point you just made rich about coming back and get everything back to normal and i said dane that's my nephew's son uh name i said dane you got got to understand something when you come back there is a different normal you know everything that you have now you're always present for all the events you know the, the dynamic and roles and responsibilities you and your wife have established and everything that you have that is normal when you leave for a year and you come back that normal is gone but you have to mentally understand that almost before you leave because you're when you come back it's a different level of emotion uh, and reconnectivity you're trying to have so i told him that right out the gate and then i told him when you come back same thing whenever you know i came back when you come back you are adjusting to the family dynamic that your wife established in your absence and she was doing all of it she was managing everything mommy and daddy duty so you have to both rest respect that you have to recognize that and then you have to be patient in how you reacclimate. and that's difficult because physically and emotionally you don't you don't have that patience you have to mentally kind of say okay i'm gonna give myself a month or six weeks and just roll with what my wife and the family dynamic is the other part and this is particular to you as a father and everybody can view it differently rich when i left i told my daughters before i left you know i, I missed their birthday i missed you know soccer season all this other stuff i said i'm not going to try to make up for what i missed i missed it 
It's gone. There is no making up. We're going to start when I come back from where we are. And I told them that before I left. So they didn't feel like, oh, dad's missing this and he's going to make. No, I, you know, and I spent about two months and everybody has different timelines before they know they're going to deploy. You know, sometimes you leave like that. Sometimes you have a couple months. I told my daughters in the pre build up to deployment about how I expect them to, you know, live the best they can and show that everything I've been teaching them. Because as you know, when you leave, there's no guarantee you're coming back. You know, so when I left, you know, I there was no guarantee I was coming back. So they needed to understand that I had an expectation that they were going to live out everything that I've been teaching them. And when I left, they were maybe 13 or 14. I can't remember. But which is also why I talk about you start when they're five or six, because you never know when you're going to leave. So as soon as they're cognitively able to listen and hear and absorb some of the stuff you're talking subconsciously they can do it when they're one, two, whatever. But when they're consciously able to do it, you start then you start when they're five, six, seven, eight, nine, because you don't know when you're not going to be there. So at that point I had been pouring into them for six, seven years. And I said, this is what I expect. And that had helped them prepare. My oldest daughter did great. My youngest daughter, she struggled a little bit more. I think it was an emotional thing. Different kids, as you know, react differently, but you have to be, you almost better serve to think before you deploy, how are you going to deal with the redeployment between you and your wife, you and your kids? And then when you come back, you mentally force yourself to do that because you're going to have conflict emotionally and physically. And, you know, and I think having friends like yourself, um, my friend Daniel Faust, another brother, uh, my friend Ben Colloy, he has the Military Dad podcast. Um, a, a lot of times, like for me, I, I grew up without having a a dad. I had a stepdad, but I grew up without having a dad. So once my daughter was born, you know, like I was the first one. I told my wife, I want to be the first one to change her. I want to be the first one to, I want to be the first. And I never, never knew how to be a dad. And there's like no playbook to learn how to be a dad. So sometimes you have to learn on the fly. But, you know, now like something happened the other night and I felt really bad about it. Um, I guess I was really hungry and I put her to bed and she's like, Daddy, just sit with me for a minute. And I'm like, I want to go eat. And then I went downstairs and I ate and, and I'm laying in bed and I'm like, man, that, that's, you know, that's horrible. You know, she wanted me just to sit there for a minute. And I was so absorbed in, in myself. And I, then I, you know, I went back up and I apologized to her and I hugged her and I said, I'm sorry. But I think a lot of times we miss those moments. But I think for kids, those moments are the those are the big things. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and the reality is we don't know how our kids interpret what we teach, what we do and what we show. We believe that they interpret a certain way. But the mind of a nine year old or a 12 year old or a 15 year old relative to the mind of a 30 or 40 year old or 50 year old is not the same. So when we do things and we say things, we're assuming from our own perspective that it was conveyed in their mind. But you don't you have no idea if they took 10 percent of that, whether the last thing you said was more important than the first thing. Uh, whether what you did in your body language trumped what you said, you know, because they've seen you do something for the last six months and just because you said it, you know, today trying to make up for it. You don't understand that or and you, you never will until they get older. and They can, you know, turn it back on you and tell you. 
So you just really have to, and I give this analogy, Rich, because I'm a motorcycle rider. And I tell people that when you first start riding a motorcycle, they tell you, you go where your eyes take you. And then the example I give is when you're going through a sharp turn, a U-turn, they tell you to look through the turn. If you don't look through the turn, you may not make it through the turn. You're going to wobble to get there. And I give that analogy because as a father, as a parent, you need to have an idea of where you're trying to go, a vision, a desired characteristic or attribute. And I had three philosophies when my kids were about three or four, really probably about months or a year after I had that conversation with the lieutenant colonel when he said he missed his daughters growing up. And those three philosophies was raising to be functional, um, independent adults, teach them about self-esteem. This important. It's one of the things that attracted me to my wife was high self-esteem. And number three was nothing catastrophic, you know, so sex, pregnancy, alcohol, abuse, and drugs. Those are my three philosophies. So when I went about raising them and talking to them and spending time with them, it was based off of those three philosophies. I had clarity in what I was aspiring for my daughters when they turned 20, 21, 22, whenever they became adults. And that helped me to discern what I should do, what I should talk about, how I should deal with this. If you're just out there sort of playing it by ear, then the challenge is, and you know this, you may there may be a critical point at six or seven years old that you don't realize is that important to what you're aspiring for when they're 16 or 17. But it's going to catch up because when they're 16 or 17, you're like, oh, man, I should have one of the classic ones I talk about is teaching money. You know, my daughters, they interact with so many friends, even when they're in high school, that were not taught how to manage credit cards and manage money. And parents introduce it when they're 16 or 17 on the surface, but they go into a capitalistic society and they make thousands of dollars and they're 25 struggling with managing money. And you're a parent, you're like, oh man, I should have started that when they were like eight or nine. I tell every father I mentor and teach, you need to get money in your kid's hand between eight and 10, because this should be routine and natural for them to manage money. And don't associate it with chores or grades because you're trying to teach them to manage money. That is a simple thing that if you think about it, we all deal with as adults. We deal with money just like we deal with food and sleep. It's an everyday thing. But how many of us actually commit to teaching our children when they're single digits? So you have a decade in the bank. So now you can talk to them. My, my oldest daughter's buying a house. You know, she got married a year ago. We're having those type of conversations relative to money, not basically balancing your budget, which she had figured out before she became a young adult at 21. I love it. So now talk to us. Um, like I said, I love this book. What was the impetus of this book? And what is the ultimate goal of this book? Yeah, I'll tell you, now, you know, Rich, I'm a spiritual guy. I am, you know, I am. I've been led by the Holy Spirit my entire adult life, particularly. And I heed the word when it's spoken to me. And I was sitting in church in 2012, so I guess about 10 years ago, and I was called to write a book. And I've had different people tell me for years, because I was always fine with sharing ideas and what I was doing with my daughters in real time. And they had mentioned, man, you should write a book. And I just always blew it off. I don't consider myself a writer. But when I got called to write the book in 2012, that's what I did. The fascinating part is when I showed it to my wife and daughters, they were like, well, dad, we're not grown. How are you going to publish a book and we're not grown? How are you going to talk about raising daughters and, and we're not adults? And then I said, you know, the, the Holy Spirit didn't say publish the book in 2012. He said, write the book. So I said, fine. 
So in the next seven years, I went about adding stories, refining the, the actual book, and I published it in 2019. And then I also was pretty well, pretty clearly called to educate. So I consider myself an educator at heart. And I was actually, when I was going to retire years ago, I was going to teach. And I thought teaching high school math was going to be my, my calling after I got out of the Army. And I got a pretty clear message that, no, you're going to be an educator, but not of high school students. You're going to be an educator of men. You're going to be an educator of families. And that calling really led me to, you know, the three L's of my business, leadership, legacy, and literacy. It called me to my Raising Confident Daughters course, my Parent Empowerment course, you know, everything that I'm developing to really contribute to society, contribute to communities, contribute to what I think is the most important single element in our country, which is the nuclear family. And how do I take 30 years of insights, of experiences, of aggressive, reflective analysis and translate that to help, you know, people like you, Rich, have the foresight to factor in things that you may not have otherwise factored if not introduced at the time. Because it's one thing to give advice to somebody when your daughter's 25 and they're grown and out the house. And you're like, that'd be great if I knew it when they were five or 10. My goal is to get it to fathers when their daughters are single digits or preteen so you can actually incorporate it into what you're doing, your relationship, so that they can excel, recognize their self-worth and have that healthy relationship with you into adulthood. And, okay, now I want to, we may get a little, we may go down a wormhole Okay, a real quick second, but that's okay. Because um, some of these things need to be talked about. Now, um, I for a portion of my life, became homeless, um, got to- took it in by a colored family from down south, uh, taught me what the culture is, taught me about what a matriarch, what a patriarch is in a family. Um, and, and I think, you know, right now, the nuclear family, as we're talking about, is under attack, um, no matter whether it's from uh, BLM, whether it's from um, just the out, outside forces, you know, the nuclear family is being under attack where, you know, it used to be, you know, mom, dad, and then the children. But it seems like they're trying to blow up the families and make everybody an individual. So talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing with the nuclear family trying to be taking, trying to be taken apart. The, the dynamic of the family is something, you know, and I'm an, I'm an apostolic proponent. So God, Christ, husband, wife. So that's the model I believe in. And what you run into are the family not being functional, which creates all of the friction and disparity that you're raising. Now, the dysfunction of the family is a byproduct of different things, you know, whether it's the absence of the father physically, whether it is the lack of leadership of the father, right? Because men, if you're a man or you're a boy, and you're a man, you need to learn how to be a leader. And if you're not a leader, particularly in the black community, then the woman who's always there is going to take the leadership mantle. So when my wife empowered me to lead my household, I needed to be prepared to make the decisions to, you know, in our instance, I I was the breadwinner. 
I guided where we were going to go. And I gave that level of clarity and direction. And I was present physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. That's what's expected if you're going to lead a household. But it's God, Christ, husband, wife. Husband is there to do those things. If you don't do that, then someone else is going to in your presence or in your absence. So that is the first breakdown. Education and leadership of parents and men within the home is the first opportunity for the family to be attacked and to be dysfunctional. Now, whether or not you bring in other entities to fill in for the father, whether it's, you know, you know, same parent household, whether or not people claim that you don't need to have the nuclear family and you can do it with a single family, a single parent uh, or not. All of that is just exacerbates the absence of the father. And I don't know, you know, Black Lives Matter is a tax. They have their different definition of it. Different people, you know, used to have the old thing, Rich, a village raises, it takes a village to raise a kid. Yeah. That is sort of going away because families don't want to allow other people into their family. They think they know what they're doing. But a lot of parents, as you say, they're not educated. You know, you can get your master's degree, you can get your bachelor's degree. You want to send your kids to college. Everybody wants to get educated. And now they're putting everything more on the parents and the parents at time and space are not educated. Right. If you're not educated when your kids five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, and that's a critical time to teach them. And you now get educated when they're 25 or 26, you've missed 20 years. And they're going to they're going to do what based off what they learned when they were single digits or early teens. And so that creates issues within the family. And and then you have this. Lack of transparency and honesty with our children. You know, if you drank, if you smoke, if you did drugs and you're going to not disclose that to your children so that they can best not drink and do drugs and have sex before they become, you know, adults or married or, or at least responsible. And you you try to shy away from it because you're uncomfortable. You know, when I talk in my class about sex, there's a lot of men who don't aren't comfortable talking to their daughters about sex, cross gender, sexual discussion, cross gender abuse, cross gender responsibilities is something that the nuclear family should do. But if the cross gender is avoiding it because they're not comfortable with it, your kid's not going to bring up those things. They're not going to raise the topic of sex with you at a mature level. And if you don't answer when they ask it, then they're going to go find somebody else. Well, you've just abdicated that responsibility. And now the nuclear family, once again, is being broken apart. So that's a little bit about that. I can go more, but there's a lot of different indicators out there that is creating issues within the household that are either external or unfortunately internal. Now, you know, one thing, I'm a big uh, Pastor T.D. Jakes fan. Uh, You know, we actually had lunch together one time. And, you know, he always taught me that um, during that lunch that if you don't date your wife, another man will. And um, he also taught me, you know, that or he showed me that, you know, your kids will see what you do more than what you say. You know, so like for me, um, I always kiss my wife. Even if I'm just walking past her, I just kiss her on her head and say, I love you. I think you're beautiful. You know, or, you know, always, you know, try to be show to show my daughter that that's the way a husband should treat his wife. You know what? My wife will get flowers on just because it's a Tuesday, mm. you know, because I, I think we mimic, you know, what we see, you know, like even in business, you know, success leaves clues. 
but I think also in relationships, if we see, if our daughters see our, our wives being mistreated, they might think, well, maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. So, you know, that's the kind of boy or man, well, I don't call them men, but, you know, that's the kind of boy I'm going to bring home. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. And there's two parts in my view. And I'll tell you a story that um, I heard when my dogs were maybe four or five years old from a guy I was on the plane with. We were talking back and forth. And he made a point about daughters at the end. He goes, you know, this is the deal, though, Eddie. No matter what you do with your daughters and everything you talked about doing or, or you did, you can't control who they marry. And depending on who they marry, they could disrupt or, you know, disavow everything you've been teaching. And that stuck with me. I'm like, what? It's like, I'm going to do everything that I'm going to talk about and everything I've, I've imagined. And it can literally go up and smoke like that. And that always sort of stuck in the back of my head. And I, but I went about everything you, you're reading in the book, Rich, and everything that I taught my daughters and empowerment and independence and self-awareness and self-esteem and everything, desire for education, the whole nine. And then my daughter got engaged. My oldest daughter got engaged. And that conversation from 20 years ago popped back in the front of my mind. And she had been dating DeAndre, which is his name, for years. They knew each other in middle school. They were dating on and off. And so now it is a, a patriarchal responsibility I'm taking on. Just like my dad, you know, is a patriarch of my family. So I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Because I, I don't know his background. I don't know how he was raised to be a man. I don't know how he was raised to be a husband, how he was raised to be a father, how he was raised to be a leader of the home. Everything we talked about before about this, you know, you're kind of winging it. You don't know. I didn't know that about him. But I also remember what that gentleman said when I was on the airplane 20 years ago. So I went to him and I said, hey, DeAndre, this is what I like to do. Because he proposed to me. I'm old school. So my daughters, he, he came to my house. He proposed. He asked me for my daughter's hand in marriage, which allows me to identify him, give him some initial sort of indicators of my expectations, and, and then ultimately let it follow the natural process. So this was after that. I said, I want to talk to you once a month, every month for the next year before you marry my daughter, Jalen. I said, it's just going to be you and me. You know, you can tell Jalen if you want, but I want to build that relationship so you understand the family dynamic. Because you forget when you're first married sometimes how foreign the other family is. And so every month for a year, we talked. He brought up something, whether it was, okay, how you deal with compromise, you know, family dynamic. I would bring up stuff that I would give him advice on. And some of it was just, we just talked about sports or something general. But it was more substantive than surface. And at the end of it, Richard, I said, look, DeAndre, understand this. I'm always going to respect you as the head of your household but I'm always going to recognize you as being underneath mine. And when he told me afterwards, he said about 50% of that was new, 50% he kind of knew already. But, you know, you understand how we did calendar, how Jalen got acted certain ways. And he was now, we built that relationship where when he has kids, for example, and I come in as the granddad at that point to help him be a father, he knows where I'm coming from because we're not starting from scratch. And I told a lot of older fathers that. And there aren't a lot of men, I didn't have one, whose father-in-law did that before they became fathers. And there aren't a lot of men I know who did that for their future son-in-law. 
you know, they either have passive cursive conversations or comfortable, and then they try to figure it out after they're married. That's just an example of if you want to set the conditions for how your family functions, then you have to put forth energy to think about what you can do to affect that as best you can, because there's certain things you can't control and there's other things that you can. You know, and I love that. And, you know, I should have said this from from the beginning. Um, I also want to thank you for being a brother in Christ. Uh, I think that's the most important thing to, for me. Um, you know, but I think now, like I said, my father just passed on on Valentine's Day and there's so much family drama, you know, and and a lot of people, you know, like my it's it's it was it's been hard on my mom. They've been together for 30 something years. So, you know, she's now she's without her husband. But, you know, but there's so much family dynamics and a lot of people don't realize, you know, I think they'd be a lot better if they kind of read the Bible where, you know, it actually says, you know, the wife will cleave to the husband, husband will cleave to the wife and they have their own family dynamic. Cause sometimes like somebody will get married and you know, they're newlyweds and they let everybody else get involved in their marriage and their relationship. And then it all goes to crap. You know what I'm trying to say? Cause you have so many of these outside people telling you, you should do this, you should do that. So talk to us for newlyweds, somebody or somebody is about to get married. What are some of the things you success? Can you suggest for a person to have a strong marriage? Because for me, it's God, my wife and me, it's the three of us. Um, but a lot of people don't believe in that. You know what I mean? I do. And and you're absolutely right. The part about the cleaving, which implies leaving your mother or your father and making your wife or your husband priority number one. And, and that can be sensitive. You know, when and when you're when you're the oldest or the youngest and you have a close relationship with your mom, you know, or your dad, typically it's your mother, though, let's say, then your mother wants to be intimately involved in, in your success, but she doesn't realize that being intimately involved in your marriage actually may be counterproductive to the health and success of your marriage. And if you're the husband or the wife and you allow your mother, let's say, into your relationship and your mother trumps the importance of your spouse, then you are now creating friction. And that is problematic. And what happens sometimes is very early on that you make clear who is the new number one woman in your life for a father. And my wife became my number one when we got married. And if you have mother's opinion and wife's opinion at the time, I tell you when it's early, Richard, it doesn't matter who is right. Your mom could be absolutely right. But I would recommend any husband early on, you back your wife. Because she needs to know that you realize that she's the most important woman in your life now. And it could be, well, you know, you can negotiate. She makes a good point. It's okay. It's not that big a deal. Absolutely wrong answer. It is a big deal. And she needs to be your number one. Now, everything you do prior to that to make sure that she matches your personality, she matches your aspirations, she's, you know, she's willing to uh, be a partnered leader in the home, but she's willing to defer certain, all that stuff you got to figure out and work out. But, but when you get into marriage and I had a, I was in a marriage conference. It was like a couple's group one time and a man who divorced his wife 
followed me and another couple, my wife and I and another couple who had, each of us had over 25 years. And he made some fascinating points about when you first get into marriage, you have this expectation that the family's going to be the way you grew up and your wife has the expectation the family's going to be the way she grew up. And when you come together, if you don't reconcile that it's going to be neither, it's going to be the way that y'all establish it based off your roles and relationships and personality, then you're going to end up going like this because, but we have been married so long and the two couples before him, he said, y'all don't even realize you've resolved that. But a lot of younger couples, they fight with that because they're like, why aren't we doing this? Cause my family did that. And the other person's like, why aren't we doing this? My family. And this was most important. That was most important. So early on in marriage, you really need to establish, and I'll say this real quick, Rich, you need to establish what's important to you. And you need to respect when your wife establishes what's important to her. And I'll give you a quick story. Uh, and I, I mentioned this before about dinner, right? Dinner is a fairly mundane thing. We do it every day, right? Somebody's going to cook, somebody's going to eat. And in our family, my wife cooks. I tell people she cooks inside the house, outside the house. She grills, she cooks in the house. She is a great cook. She cooks, she baked the whole nine. And years ago, she used to be like, what do you want to eat? She would ask me what I wanted to eat. And I'm like, dear, at one point, I'm like, look, I make decisions all day. I really don't have to decide what I want to eat. You decide what we're going to eat and I'll eat it. Mm, that was my view. Number two, I was out playing golf one day, didn't tell her when I was going to come home, came home late, probably 30 minutes after we thought we were going to come home. My wife was standing outside the door on the stoop, looking at me, hand on hip, saying, look, if I'm going to spend all the time to make a hot meal, the least you could do is let me know you're not going to be here. That was 25 years ago, Rich. Guess what? If I'm out and I'm not going to be home when it's dinner time, I'm calling or texting or whatever. Now, before we had cell phones, right? Because she made it very clear within the first three to five years of our marriage that if she's going to take this on, this is what she expects from me. And if I'm going to respect her, then I'm going to respect what she wants. And that is sort of the establishing, but you can't be coy and act like, well, it's no big deal. You were late five, six, seven times, and I'm not going to say anything. No, you say it when it's a problem. Same thing because I dealt with money in the household. We had the same dynamic. So if you're a young couple or a young father listening to this, you need to establish what's important to you, recognize and respect what your wife says is important to her, and that will help establish a foundation in your relationship that you move forward with. I love it. Now, um, this is my last two questions. Um, how, you know, I love, like I said, I love this book. Um, as you've seen, I've actually posted a few times about what I'm learning in it. So um, it's a great, for me, it's a great teaching book. So how do we find your book? How do we find your courses and how do we support your mission? Yeah, so it's on Amazon. It's a and it's pretty easy find. I think start point parenting in the White House, White House quotation marks. And I tell people it's not a it's not a political book. And you know this, obviously, Rich. The White House is the, the term we use for how we function in our house. It's a term that we use that has obvious connotations. So you can go to Amazon and you can find the book uh, if you just you know search for start point parenting in the White House. You also go to my website www.j, the letter J, Edward White Jr. Jr. Uh, I have two tabs because I do stuff for the community and I do stuff for dads only. So I, there's a four fathers tab that you can go to and that gets you to information about my courses. I have a Raising Confident Daughters program. I, I tell people it's like a master's level program. 
It really gets into higher levels of understanding your foundation, establishing a vision, dealing with every phase of development for your daughters and enabling them to be, you know, functional independent adults who can excel and recognize their self-worth. I have online only classes you can take if you just want to dabble in it and see, pick a certain topic. And then I have, like I said, the premium course. And you can get that through my jedwardwhitejr.com, uh, starpointjd on either Facebook or Instagram. If you want to kind of go through that route are also uh, great ways to do it. And the last one, if you actually wanted to kind of get some video um, testimony, not testimonial, sort of a case study, you can go to raiseconfidentgirls.com and that'll tie you in through that as well. So that's kind of where I am out in the spaces. And um, I'd love to talk. I, you know, like you said, Rich, my goal right now, I'm no longer in the Army. Uh, I'm able to dedicate all of my time and energy to helping fathers uh, who are willing and interested in investing in being the best dads they can be. I love it. So now I'm going to give a, give a big shout out to uh, Robert, the warrior strategist Garcia. He actually put us together. So I want to give a big shout out. And how did you guys come together? And what has that relationship um, brought to, to the forefront? It's funny when you start looking out, I'm in this entrepreneurial space, different people reference you to somebody else. And then they ref. So uh, Marty Martinez, when I was, I think I was just transitioning or in the midst of transitioning out, or he knew I was going to transition out. He knew I was going to go into business. He said, hey, you should link up with Rob Garcia. And as you know, Richard, some people drop names, but it's not really the name they drop. It's the person who tells you that name. Yeah. So when Marty, who I very much respect, uh, we did a podcast, you know, on his show a while ago. And we served together when he said, hey, reach out to that person. I'm like, OK, if Marty, if you said it, I'm going to do it in that same way for us. Right. Rob said, hey, you should reach out. And, and I respected and recognized the value of that that recommendation. So that's how I linked up with with Rob. I've taken one of his courses for for media and trying to get into podcasts and media spaces and doing interviews so that it helps you know people believe that I am a real person who does real things in a real business. Uh, because as you know, credibility is one of the biggest things. Well, I really appreciate Richard you inviting me on the show because people know you because you've been delivering quality you know uh, podcasts and insights for years. And if you say, hey, this Eddie White guy's reliable and a pretty good dude, then I immediately go up on people's um, chart because you're saying it. So that's why I really appreciate uh, that you brought me on. But that's kind of what I got from Rob. And he just kind of helps me figure out what I'm doing in my business so that I can impact as many fathers as I can. All right. So last question that I have. Um, we live in a crazy world. I mean, especially with what's going on uh, in Ukraine and all that stuff. So um, I had one of the iron chefs on from the Food Network last week, and he was talking about how, you know, in America, we've lost over 100,000 restaurants in the last two years because of COVID. So there's a lot of parents out there that are driving Uber, DoorDash, just trying to put food on the table. So if I ask the average parent to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if somebody's listening to our show right now, and we ask them to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely to do it. So if somebody's listening to this right now and realizing maybe my relationship with my kids is not as good as it could be, or 
now, like I said, my, my dad passed and we finally reconnected and, you know, um, before he passed, but if somebody's struggling, maybe their relationship with their own parents, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start to get some peace and some clarity in their relationships? I think the biggest thing, if they want to do something in the next 24 hours, not, not doing anything external, right? I was going to say you can go, you know, take one of my class for free, but just personal things they can do on their own. It would be to find, I would say, 15 to 30 minutes, 15 to 30 minutes where you are by yourself, you know, whether it's 12 o'clock at night, six in the morning, you know, go step outside during lunch. Go find yourself 15 to 30 minutes and just, you know, I would say pray. But really what I would say is you need to seriously look at yourself, look at where you are and think about where you want to go in. Pick a time, one year, two years, five, whatever it is, but really scrutinize. Okay, where am I in my life right now? whether it's relationship with my siblings, my parents, my kids, my personal, mental, physical, emotional, spiritual state, where am I right now? And, and to be honest with yourself, it's just you, you know, it's the old man in the mirror, right? Look at me, find the 15 to 30 minutes, figure out where you are, and then pick a point in time where you want to go. Because one of the challenges some people have is stagnation. Stagnation leads to despair. Despair may lead to apathy. And then you go down bad things from there. And what I teach and, you know, I have other project programs I do is really this whole forward thinking. It is a mindset that says you're if you're thinking about going forward, then your energy and momentum can take you that way. So what you want to do is check yourself to make sure you're not feeling stagnant and overly negative. So assess yourself, pick a point in time that you where you want to be, however you envision it, relationship or individually, and then identify one thing that you can do in the next 24 hours based off of that, that goal, and then do it. Hook or crook, prioritize, do it. Whether it's reading, enrolling, reading something, enrolling in something, reaching out and calling somebody, physically visiting something, whatever it is. One thing in the next 24 hours based off where you want to go and where you are, and then go from there. I love it. So guys, if you're, if you're watching this, make sure you pick up this book. It's a definite game changer. It changed my life. It changed my my daughter's life. And I think it's going to be a generational change. I want to thank our sponsors. Like I said, we're actually giving away this uh, bag of coffee. Have you guys been seeing? I've been sipping on it. So I actually drink my own stuff. Um, so I love my, my own stuff. So if you actually love coffee with a kick-ass um, flavor, but also energy, Definitely check out Vertical Momentum Coffee. Guys, if, if you know anybody that's struggling with hoarding issues or any mental health issues, definitely check out Tammy Moses and the Hoarding Solution. She's changing uh, America one home at a time. Eddie, I want to say thank you, brother. Um, I'm so grateful for you. Um, thank you for being in my inner circle and thank you for changing my life. All right. Absolutely welcome, Rich. I appreciate uh, and humbled that. I'm having such an impact uh, on you. That really means a lot to me that uh, that anything that I have said or, or generated is translating into 
improve relationships with you and your daughter particularly and any confidence that you're getting as being a father because you're right it is a you know and i said in my book parenting is a multi-decade multi-generational endeavor so you're right it is a legacy uh changer uh if you can actually do some of the things that that i cover and make it applicable to your circumstance so i appreciate you reaching out i appreciate our relationship and our friendship and uh and i look forward to continuing and building it over the years i love it so guys if if you enjoyed this episode please leave a comment leave a review on uh, maybe share this especially if you know somebody that's struggling in their relationships all right guys remember vertical momentum the only way to go is what up all right guys i will catch you guys on the flip i'll see you tomorrow thank you for joining us today please hit subscribe and share please feel free to leave us a comment